Welcome to Stay Engaged. Everything you know and love about the IAB's flagship conference Engage, but reimagined for these extraordinary times. It's Engage, but offstage. Today's offstage audio session is from IAB UK member Lab Bible Group. Outdated legislation prevents sexually active gay or bisexual men from donating blood, even if it's perfectly safe to use. Lab Bible Group and campaign Freedom to Donate award-nominated Blood Without Bias campaign saw the social publisher use its mass reach to raise awareness of this discriminatory issue and galvanize a youth audience to take action. Here they are to tell us all about it. Hello guys, my name's Nick Hodgkins and I head up the brand marketing team at Lab Bible Group. Lab Bible Group is one of the world's leading social publishers for young people, sharing news, entertainment, original content and real life stories to its global audience of over 130 million followers. A big focus of my role at Lab Bible Group is to develop campaigns that provide a platform for social issues that matter most to young people. Our company mission statement is to give the youth a voice by building communities that laugh, think and act. So a bit of background, since acquiring the brand in 2018, we wanted to develop its first ever social good campaign. Unilad's audience is massive and is actually one of the most engaged publishers on Facebook in the world. So we wanted to hero a social issue that matters to young people, but doing it in a really unmistakable Unilad way. One big thing that Unilad does well is it finds something small, whether it's a new music artist or simply a human story, and brings it to the masses and makes it big. So we wanted to provide a platform for a social issue that was otherwise had low awareness and to share it with the world. So in collaboration with uh, creative agency Elvis, we came across the outdated policy that prevents sexually active gay and bisexual men from donating blood in the UK. By using social listening and search term reporting, we could see that awareness was low. Um, so we approached pressure group Freedom to Donate, who have been working on changing this policy in the UK for over six years. We asked them if they wanted to work together in tackling this issue, and thankfully they said yes. And with me now to talk about this campaign and its mission in more detail, I have Freedom to Donate's founder, Ethan Spivey. For those who aren't aware of the policy, could you explain in more detail about the background to the policy and why it still exists today? Yeah, of course. So um, you mentioned there that sexually active gay and bisexual men who are restricted. And what that really means is currently, if you're a man who's had sex with another man in the last three months, you can't donate blood. And aside from that being, you know, one hell of a dry patch, um, you know, we believe that's fundamentally unfair. And more than that is actually missing out on a huge potential of people who want to donate and could do so safely. So the background to this is, I think it's completely fair to say, comes from historical viewpoints of gay and bisexual men in the 80s. And previously, men who had sex with men were entirely banned from donating blood. That changed, and it changed to 12 months, which meant you had to wait 12 months without sex, which, again, potentially a long-term marriage might be acceptable, but realistically just isn't, you know, a kind of workable policy. And then we helped work with the government a couple of years ago when we secured a review in 2015, and the policy changed from the 12-month deferral, or this waiting time, down to the three-month deferral period. And what we're saying now is that a couple of years on, and actually with the kind of strength of support, and not just that, but the importance of the blood supply and the sufficiency of the blood supply, it's time to assess people as individuals, not based on their sexuality, but actually via their risk profile. And that's what we're really campaigning hard for and working for now. 
I guess over uh, the last five years, male donors specifically have decreased by 25%. So obviously there's a real need for change. From a freedom to donate perspective, what is your kind of like work remit and what do you guys do to help get this policy changed? Yeah, at the start of this year, NHS Bund Transplant Services said that they needed 68,000 new male donors to kind of sustain the blood supply, not just increase it and the availability of it. But for us, that was the most important piece of context, because yes, this is about a fair and equal policy for gay and bisexual men. But more than that, it's not just about fairness. It's about a safe and sufficient blood supply for everyone who relies on it. And very, very personally, that means a lot to me. Um, My granddad survived a major operation because of a blood donor. And one in three of us are going to need donated blood at some point in our lives. Men's blood as well is particularly important because it's the only blood used for the transfusion in newborn babies, for example. And higher levels of iron mean men's blood is particularly useful. So that's the kind of background and context. And what we're saying is, is we provide a solution. There are thousands of gay and bisexual men out there who want to do this incredible act and, and donate blood. And you ask kind of what we've been doing. To be completely honest, we are a voluntary group. There's four of us who run Freedom to Donate. And what it really is, is a, a kind of coalition of campaigners and supporters and charities within this sector. So we work very, very closely with the leading LGBT charities in the UK. But we essentially set about building political support and working closely trying to influence government and secure a review. That's because the background of the people involved in Freedom to Nate and myself and the other volunteers is predominantly political and media-based. And we kind of set about this as a, you know, a pressure group or lobby group, whatever you want to call it, to really analyse that policy and kind of work out how we could influence and instigate a review into this policy. And that's what we secured back in, in 2015. But predominantly political and we built cross-party support with an all-party parliamentary group. That's really been the focus of our activity. And would you say it's fair to say that I think one of the challenges for you guys historically was to get widespread awareness of the issue? Completely. I think that's completely fair. I don't want to make excuses, but you know, we are, we're a voluntary group. We're hugely passionate about this. And, you know, I, I kind of wish I'd been paid for it, but no, never have been. <laughs> um, but it's it's a huge amount of time and energy and passion that we've all put into this. But it's also fair to say we recognise our own limitations, which is that we do not have the platform of a global brand. We don't have the resource to be able to do as many things as we really, really want to. And something that really kind of brings this all home is is the reaction of people when they find out about the policy, you know, firstly saying, I never knew that was the case. And secondly, why on earth is that the case? And (laughs) we've always wanted to reach those people and do more. And we've tried our very best through social media and through kind of online pledges and and whatever we could kind of think of on on an absolute shoestring budget of (laughs) our own bank accounts to try get awareness out there. But, you know, that, that's obviously difficult and we do not have the reach and platform that a global brand does. So that's obviously why when, you know, you guys came to us, it was an absolute blessing. So, yeah. Well, I think from, from our perspective, when we were doing the homework about the cause, like it was clear that awareness outside of the LGBTQ plus community was quite low. And I think because Unilad has such a huge reach, like our global monthly reach is 380 million there's obviously a clear opportunity for a brand like ours to put this on the agenda of, you know, the vast majority of young people in the UK, but also around the world. 
So not only, you know, as a brand can we engage with the community, but we can also speak to those outside of it to potentially become advocates for the cause. And I think this was a really clear thing for us. And it brings me to my first piece of advice when developing a social good campaign. And that's always to ensure that as a brand, you can add value to the cause. So whether it's, you know, our You OK Mate campaign around mental health or the Trash House campaign around plastic pollution and similarly for this campaign is ensuring that you can look at the landscape. What are other people, brands, organisations doing in this space? Uh, what are the challenges? And then simply, what can we do to make things better? Ethan, what were your first thoughts on working with Unilad, considering that we're not an LGBTQ plus media brand? To be really frank, <laughs> you know, cautious, I yeah. think that's fair to say. We were really aware of the fact that you guys have an incredible reach at brand and platform. It's fundamentally different to what, what we do. And I think that's fair to say. So I think bringing those two together, we really just wanted to ensure that we shared the same outcome of what we wanted from this. And I think mm. anything that we've done as a group over the last few years has always been very, very focused on exactly what will change the discussion or kind of really dial up pressure on the government to, to make a change in this area. So we were very conscious about how we work with you guys to kind of really implement this change. And yeah. I also obviously know, obviously, you know, know about the brand itself. And I think as a very small voluntary LGBT group, we wanted to make sure that it was and the activity that we did was meaningful. And I think most importantly that, you know, what we did together was positive and something that, you know, we thought would would really have an impact because it's very easy to think about shock and awe tactics and kind of making a PR stunt. But I think what we're focused on is change and how we achieve that. And I think, you know, we were very aware of that going into the meetings with you guys and in all honesty, and not just because we're recording a podcast together, <laughs> we were so surprised but also pleased at how we were treated as a voluntary group and the input and influence that we had over the campaign and how you listen to us and I think that's a real testament to, to not just obviously your team but I think also the way in which big brands should be working with with groups and and not in a way that they're the junior partner or that they just give mm. a bit of advice but that they're integral to the activity that you want to do together and really can bring you so much closer to the community that you want to reach out to. The big thing and like you said about the opportunity is that we really wanted to symbolically communicate that there was safe blood out there waiting to be used to save lives so when developing the idea, working with the amazing creative agency Elvis, is what better way of communicating this potential pool of blood than by going out there and asking the community to donate their own blood, which sounds quite gory, but actually it was a, a really wonderful process and idea. And we launched a campaign in November last year in 2018, and we launched it with a video that featured the first openly gay rugby league player, Keegan Hurst, he was our campaign ambassador. And in the video, we asked the gay and bisexual men within our Unilag community to volunteer to donate their own blood at our soon-to-be-launched Illegal Blood Bank. This was the world's first blood bank specifically for gay and bisexual men. Obviously, calling it the Illegal Blood Bank was tongue-in-cheek. People that were eventually donating blood at the blood bank weren't actually breaking the law, um, but it was a nod to the fact that they were prevented from uh, doing so in, in real life. 
It's fair to say our legal team weren't too keen on the name for the obvious risks. I recommended us to choose something a little more safer. However, just as a brand, we were happy to take that risk. I think we needed to have a name that was really punchy, that would drive attention and have cut through and also give that feeling of a grassroots movement. So we kind of stuck to our guns and retained the name. But it's fair to say we, there was a lot of planning that went into making sure that everything went without a hitch. But Ethan, if I go back to when we first chatted and presented the idea to you, the fact that we were going to create an illegal blood bank, what were your first thoughts? Probably the same as your legal teams, uh, to be honest. <laughs> and I think we were, we obviously understood where you were coming from, what you kind of want to do. I think it is fair to say that we probably shared that. And we are always focused on the relationships that we've really, really worked hard to build with government over the last five or six years. And working with such a big brand, it was, again, about how those two things come together, about you wanting to reach that audience and us wanting to make sure that we are doing this in a kind of positive way. And something that you've said there was really, really important for us. And it's this idea of potential. It's something that's been at the core of our campaign. And I always believe it's better to be positive. It's much, much easier to take to Twitter and be negative about things. But it's harder to come up with a solution and offer a real practical, pragmatic and workable solution to what you see as a fundamental challenge. And I honestly believe that's what we did together. Because what the Illegal Blood Bank did was not only highlight the huge amount of support and that there wasn't enough spaces to get the number of people who wanted to be in there, you know, almost 10 times over, we could have got into the clinic. But more than that, the support on social media and more than that was fantastic and truly incredible. And I think it was that support, but also this idea of those potential donors. Again, I, you know, I'll go back to this. I know I said it before, but, you know, donating blood is the most incredible thing to do. And, you know, it doesn't cost you anything. You get a free biscuit, and you can go and literally, literally save lives of other people. And it really just highlighted that hugely positive message and practical solution as to what we see as a challenge for the sufficiency of the blood supply in the future. I completely agree. It definitely felt like a really positive moment. And I think we were still really surprised about the reaction when we went live with the campaign. We had 250 people apply to become donors uh, within 48 hours and we were really surprised but I'm really, really happy that people were really committed to the cause. The reception that we got from the community and beyond was really fantastic. So just to talk for the listeners' benefit, the Blood Bank itself was opened in East London in a secret location on November 23rd and it operated in the same way any blood bank operates up and down the UK. So it had exactly the same equipment, processes, even the medical staff were similarly trained to taking blood. Um, however, there were two really big differences. Number one was that the blood that we were collecting that day wasn't going to be used medically, um, obviously, but uh, symbolically it showed the will of the community to make change happen, but also to talk about uh, to emphasise the opportunity out there for that pool of extra capacity of blood. And then the second thing was, and it goes back to us being able to provide a platform for a solution, and that was 
the blood bank introduced a new process uh, and if implemented nationally could allow more gay and bisexual men to donate blood. This came in the form of a new individualised risk assessment form which Ethan I hope you can just explain fully because Freedom to Donate were really involved in the development of this form. So if you could explain that and also how it differs to the current one used in the UK today. Yeah of course. So Right now we have a policy whereby you go to a blood donation centre, you answer questions and based on those questions your eligibility to donate is assessed and you can or cannot donate blood. So the one we're talking about today is this MSM rule, men who have sex with men rule, um, about whether you've had sex with a man in the last three months. But there are a whole range of questions on that questionnaire about travel, about uh, piercings and other questions that will assess your eligibility. So what we're saying is if you're going to ask these questions, why not ask a few more? And by doing so, not just, you know, more accurately assess people, but unlock a pool of potential donors. Because right now, gay and bisexual men are treated as this homogenous, risky group. And, you know, that's not only offensive, frankly, but it's also missing a huge opportunity for people within that population who could safely donate and would do so on a regular basis. So what we are proposing, and, and we were very, very lucky to have the former Prime Minister endorse our call for an individualised risk-based policy. And, and we currently sit on a group looking at this um, right now as to how this could be implemented in England. So this is, you know, really, really exciting times. But it's essentially just asking people a couple more questions to more accurately assess their risk. Because what we believe is a person should not be treated on the basis of their sexuality, but on the basis of their risk profile. And we are entirely honest about the fact that within that group, some gay and bisexual men will not be able to donate blood, just as some heterosexual individuals are not able to donate blood because of you know where they've been or, or the other questions and so on that are on this form. So what we're doing is taking the current policy, which is based on honesty, and it's important to say their works and is trust because the evidence about the safety of the blood supply, it goes to show that people are honest about their risk profile. So why not ask them more questions? Because I don't believe people are slightly honest about things. I think when it comes to something this important, we can trust people to be honest about their activity because they are doing something which ultimately will go to save lives. So as you say, we worked with you very, very closely on this individualised risk-based assessment and this is just asking people several more questions about their sexual behaviour activity that would more accurately assess their risks so they could donate blood. I think the individualised risk assessment form was a big part of our campaign because like you said earlier is that you always want to be able to show that there's a positive step for change and I think this leads me to my second piece of advice when developing a campaign such as this and that's always ensuring that you can drive real world action and this is something that we find really important when creating a campaign on any subject is that we don't want to make the person that we're speaking to, whether they've seen a video or read a piece of content like an article, that they feel powerless and that they're not able to do anything about this. So for the Blood Without Bias campaign in particular, there are a number of ways for people to get involved and, and work towards this positive movement. So obviously we had uh, 25 donors on the day donating blood, real heroes out there trying to you know, work together to create change. We also, for those people who weren't able to donate blood and come down to London, we also opened a, a Pledge a Pint scheme 
and that was a digital scheme whereby anybody who was gay and bisexual within the UK, they could pledge a pint and uh, commit to donating blood once the law has passed. And since then, we've had 5,000 people commit to donate, uh, which equates to just over 15,000 potential lives that could be saved. Obviously, that's speaking to our community. We also wanted to make sure that people outside of the, the community could also become advocates. So they could do anything from sharing our bespoke social assets or uh, signing our change.org petition. Yeah, I think some of the points you've just mentioned there are really important to draw out. The way in which we were able to kind of speak to people, I mean, obviously, you know, how we were able to do that via your platform and, and, and then obviously how we specifically spoke to people was really important. And, and also the energy and power of our campaign has always come from that individual story because this is a hugely emotive issue and a lot of people, it's very fair to say, um, are not just upset about this, they're angry. They are, it feels like this policy harks back to a time when, you know, gay and bisexual men and our kind of contribution is not wanted or needed and there's a different category for us. And I think that's harnessing that energy and passion and driving it in a really positive way was something we were really keen on doing. And I definitely think we achieved on that day. You said about the importance of, of talking to young people there too. I mean, it's getting those people who are passionate and energetic and, you know, engaged with this to really use them as ambassadors too. And I think that's power of what happened on that day, which is we did something which was not a medical exercise. This is not about publishing a medical piece of evidence to a journal about blood donation. It's important, however, that all of that blood was safe to use. And I think that's important to note. But what this was really about was showcasing that power and potential. And not only did we manage to do that with the people who came on the day by telling their stories in, in the way you've kind of just outlined, but also about how, you know, people were able to give their story online and on social media. And I think for me, that was the real lasting impression from that day was not just that this was, I mean, how we managed to pull it off and how you managed to work with Elvis, the comms agency, and, and also everyone, everyone else who was involved, I still kind of, I'm baffled by, but actually the impact of that on people talking about it on social media and giving their personal side, I think was for me, the real lasting impression. And again, it's worth highlighting that this is such a personal policy for so many people. You know, so many people are so closely touched by this in their lives and through their families and so on. And that really came out. And the messages that we get sent and the things that are said online, it, honestly, it really punches me in the stomach and it really, mm. it really drives home why we're so passionate about doing this and, and why we think this is such an important topic. And I think that was done sensitively with the blood bank. And I think it was done powerfully. And the reach that that gave us from the platform we were able to speak from was incredible. And like you said, all the coverage that was secured with that was phenomenal. And that yeah. for us was only a positive thing. And again, worth highlighting that that was done in a very positive, pragmatic way that was offering a solution. We were not just conducting a stunt. This was re really about offering a, a workable solution to what we see as a, a problem, not just for gay and bisexual men, but for, for the entire population uh, about mm. something as important as the sufficiency of the blood supply. So for me, it was, you're right. I think when you said it was a moment, it, it really was. <laughs> and it's one of those moments, the same as... I had to tell my mum I was going on BBC Breakfast, but it's the <laughs> same moment where you kind of have to pinch yourself a little bit and say, wow, this is 
This is actually happening and it is having a mm. huge impact on the on the debate that's going on around this. And I, and I honestly believe that was an overwhelmingly positive influence. The Illegal Blood Bank, when we opened it, wasn't the, the final part of our campaign. Another really big element of legitimising what we did that day was ensuring that the, the blood that we had collected went through the same testing processes that the NHS goes through in the UK. So we did that and we found that all of the blood that we collected was 100% safe. So what that means is that if the blood that we collected that day was used medically, over 75 lives could have been saved, which we thought was just absolutely kind of like impactful and we really kind of drove home the reason why we were doing this uh, campaign. The campaign itself did prompt a response from the Department of Health who uh, who said that they were investigating whether an individualised risk assessment form is viable and that they will be um, sharing the outcome of that investigation later this year. Ethan, uh, since the campaign has launched, how much further have we come in terms of getting this policy changed? Again, worth drawing out what you've just said there about you know how the Department of Health has commented on this. And we've always been very, very, very positive about the work that we've managed to do alongside the Department of Health and, and something called SABTO, which is a group within the Department of Health, which looks at this. We have very, I'd say, very successfully and, and positively worked alongside the blood service about getting this idea of potential out there. And obviously, we think the policy is wrong. And we disagree with the current policy as to how it is right now. But we also think, you know, we offer a real workable solution with this individualized risk-based policy. And I am ever an optimist. I've had several coffees, it may be that, but I'm, you know, I'm always, <laughs> always positive about what I think, you know, the, the potential of this campaign can do. But specifically about this policy area, I went to the meeting two months ago now about the update, the status as to where this work is getting to. And, you know, I can, I'm probably not allowed to say too much to kind of take their thunder, but it is very, very positive. And this is a very positive piece of work. And, you know, I mean, I spoke about the, the blood bank for, for a good half an hour in that meeting. And do you know what? Yes, it ruffled feathers. Um, but we also wouldn't be having that discussion if it hadn't had taken place. And that's really important to highlight because, you know, five, six years ago, the government, you know, had never committed to looking at this policy. The deferral based model of asking people to wait and, and a ridiculous amount of time to donate blood was still very much in force. And, you know, Freedom Today has, has always been a partner to government, but has also been a bit of a thorn in the side. And we don't make any apologies for that. And this activity was very, very similar in a way, because what it did was conveniently highlight that the current policy is frankly absurd for many, many people. And the reaction of people, not just on the day, but as we've said on, on social media more widely, was that really of absolute disbelief at a policy that still exists like this. But more than that, it was offering that positive, workable solution. And in complete fairness, to the blood service and the government and the working group and especially the chair of that working group who you know we get on with very very well and is, is actually the most lovely lovely person they are absolutely focused on working with us other charitable groups and charities and representatives to ensure that a policy is sustainable but also fair 
Because what's really important about this too is that this is seen to be a fair and equal policy. Because as we've mentioned, it harks back to such an emotive time. And, you know, it really kind of brings up those feelings amongst gay and bisexual men and other groups who are excluded. And it's really important that we reach out to those communities and make them feel that they're valued and that we can do this incredible thing. So I honestly am very positive about this. Clearly, there's a very important focus from government right now on coronavirus, and that's absolutely right. But I would also say that I don't think it's unrealistic to expect something by the end of the year with the momentum that we've managed to get and and actually the activity and work that we've done together. And it has, has only gone to accelerate that work and kind of really highlight how important this issue is. And it's really kept it top of the agenda uh, within the Department for Health. So we're hugely grateful for that. That's amazing to hear. It's good to know that the campaign was successful in that regard. Obviously, that was a big objective for us to be able to get the right people engaged from your perspective to kind of prompt that conversation. But another part and a big part was the consumer awareness of the issue. And if we look at the results of the campaign, we generated over 10 million impressions across the whole campaign. Before the campaign launched, the social conversation around blood donation revolved around sickle cell and pain. And we, by using um, social listening tools, were able to see that actually the focus of conversation around blood donation shifted once we went live with the campaign and shifted to words that related more closely to what we were talking about around bisexual men and demand. I'm also really happy to uh, report that our campaign also changed people's minds. So 62% of those who saw our campaign were extremely in favour of changing the policy. And that was versus a benchmark of 46% in the control group. Yeah, we were really pleased with those results. And it really showed when you introduced this issue to a new audience and explained it fully, you were able to create new advocates for the cause. I'm just going to summarise my three points of advice as well. So I think I talked about these earlier, but number one is making sure that you can add value to the space. Don't get involved in an issue that you as a brand can't provide something new to improve the situation. The second point is always making sure that you can speak authentically to the people that you are directing the social change campaign to. Make sure that you can speak young people's language. This is really important that you don't talk as an authority, but get on their level and feature faces that they can relate to and be positive and not overly earnest. And then finally is driving real world action. Ensure that when you create a campaign, there's a multitude of avenues for people to get involved and support if they wish to. It's really important that no one feels that they are powerless to do anything about it. So, Ethan, on that note, I think we're out of time. been really wonderful speaking to you. Always a pleasure, Nick. Thank you. And for those who would like to learn more about the campaign, please go to our website at unilad.co.uk slash bias. Thanks again, Ethan, and also to uh, IAB for allowing us to speak today on the Stay Engaged podcast. You're listening to Stay Engaged from IAB UK. Thank you for tuning in to this offstage audio session. If you've enjoyed this session, please share it and tag at IAB UK on Twitter or Instagram. Subscribe wherever you're listening to hear the rest of the Stay Engaged sessions and for the regular IAB UK podcast. In the next session, we hear from Red Apple Creative, who will grab us by the ear with a complete guide to understanding music and sonic identity for brands. 
Expect it to be immersive, educational and entertaining. Coming up as part of Stay Engaged. 